Yeah, let me let me ask some cycling questions and some things. I want to know what it's like to be in a peloton. I want to know what it's like when you're when you're riding inches next to a guy and you know you you're seeing all the things, the stress that's going on in there. How you manage that for a long stage? What it's like to be out, Christian? What it's like to be out when you get on a breakaway and you go out there and you're you're grinding and you just know that hey, it's just a matter of time. <laughs> <laughs> like, whenever I watch that, I, I just think about that guy, man, he's just turning himself inside out. He's making this effort. And then, and it's not, all of a sudden the Peloton just rolls up on him and then rolls right by him. And I just, I'm like, oh man, it's kind of, what does that do to your brain in there? And when you're holding those podium spots, what your preparation is like to maintain and, and all those kind of things. And when you're a stage race, how do you get ready for the next day? Is that different than when you're chasing a podium spot? All those kind of things. So. I'm always curious. I'm always curious about performance. I want to know how. I want to know why, why, why the best do what they do. The NFL can stand for not for long, but our guest today, who is the current running back coach and run game coordinator for the Miami Dolphins, Eric Studsville. Eric has spent over two decades on the gridiron working for five different teams, including the Super Bowl 50 champions, Denver Broncos. And lucky for us, he is also a big cycling fan. This week on Put Your Socks On. Hello and welcome to Put Your Socks On. My main man, Gus Morton, is over in the UK this week filming on location. And let's just say, yeah, his accommodations don't include Wi-Fi access. But we have none other than Christian Vanneveld sitting in again today as our guest co-host for the second time. Welcome back to Fizzo, Christian. How you doing, man? Thank you very much, Bobby. It's it's good to be back. And you know what? I feel like a, a little bit of normalcy coming back into our lives with a ton of racing on the TV screen or computer, whatever you're watching this. And, you know, actually prepping for a race. I'm going to get to work this week on Wednesday in the Dauphiné. So, yeah, I'm, I'm feeling optimistic again. I'm happy. This is This is great. I must admit that for me, I felt almost normal because there was racing on TV all week, multiple races going on at the same time, and some fantastic racing right out right out of the gates. Yeah, let's talk about a little bit about this. So we had Strada Bianchi, which is, you know, the famous Tuscan dirt road race, gravel if you want. Some great results there from both the men and the women. Oh, yeah, incredible. Annemiek van Vluten, of course. I mean, she's just, I don't know, I feel like she's on a different level. Since the World Championships last year to what she's doing right now, she's ready to go, obviously. And then Wout van Aert. I mean, I'm feeling pretty good about myself right now. I'm, I'm batting a thousand because I, I picked Wout there and I picked him in Milan San Remo as well. Um, again, coming back from adversity, if you think about the horrific crash he had in the time trial last year in the Tour de France, I mean, just completely ripping the muscle off the side of his leg um, to the point where we couldn't really even, it was so graphic, you didn't want to show it on the TV screen. Um, so to come back and win two and a monument at 25 years old, um, I think this whole thing is just really going to be a lot of the change of the guard, apart from Anamique, of course. Uh, a lot of these young young riders coming in here and just flipping the script on everybody. Yeah, and we had uh, two outstanding results, uh, both on the, the women's and the men's side. We had Leah Thomas finish in third place, and our boy, almost local boy, Brent Bookwalter, seventh place right off the bat. I mean, maybe that training in the North Carolina mountains paid off for him this year, huh? 
Yeah, it's fantastic to see Brent. I, I know it was a long year. It's a long year for everyone, let's be honest. But Brent had a baby in Spain, got out of Spain, came back here into Asheville and trained. And he was lucky enough to be able to go outside where all of his most of his teammates were stuck in quarantine, had to train inside. So he had a little bit of upper hand on them being able to go on the Blue Ridge Parkway, for example. But I think really the one of the biggest things is just him taking the responsibility of being a father now and really up in his game. So Fantastic to see Brent getting a top 10 there. We also had the Tour de Savoie Mont Blanc, which is a 2.2 stage race. And um, the real reason why I want to talk about this is it was won by Pierre Roland, but our boy Gavin Mannion from Rally Cycling, two wins in one race. I don't think he'd ever won a race over in Europe before. And man, he just pulled off some amazing results there, including stage four and stage five time trial. Yeah, I mean, I think from what I read and from his quotes, it sounded like he straight up bonked on one of the days and just hemorrhaged a bunch of time, which is unfortunate because I think he would have won the entire GC. But who cares? He still won two races. It's the first race that he won over in Europe. So big results over there for Gavin. And we also had the Mont Ventoux Challenge. And I'll just preface this by saying it is a beautiful climb, but I hate this climb. It is so freaking hard. And that was won by young Astana rider Alexander Vlasov, ahead of Richie Port. You know, who is this guy, Vlasov? I don't know. Um, I, I've, I've just completely went and looked into him as much as I possibly could after after he did win and won. I, I don't want to say easy, but he looked so comfortable. He looked like he was in control. And, and you know, control is something that we always talk about, Bobby. Like, if you're in control of yourself and you're not just really just chasing your tail throughout a race. He knew when he wanted to attack, when he wanted to attack, how he wanted to attack. Richie came really close to him at one point in time, just twisted the throttle again. Um, but Richie's looking really good, but Vlasov, he definitely had the upper hand. It's, you're just seeing the, the younger kids who really did a lot of their homework in this quarantine just coming out flying right now. But we all know that Mont Ventoux is two different parts. The, the first part is very steep. It's through the trees. It's through like the wooded area. And then you come out to the barren slopes of, of Mont Ventoux. And it's 5.2 kilometers to go once you come out of the, uh, the forest there. And he just went as soon as they hit Chalet Renard. He just went. And for me, like, I was thinking, what is this guy thinking? Like, he knows it's going to get harder and harder. And he wasn't scared. I mean, these young kids are just not scared. You know, throw the power meter, throw, throw all the data all the tactics out the window and these guys just make racing exciting no yeah, which which we all love of course i mean just seeing these kind of things are just being so bold i mean I think julian alaphilippe is one of the guys who really started this and and it makes racing exciting again in in the years that we watched starting with lance and the blue train and all the way into ineos and what sky has done and just keep on running the, it's great to see people attacking and th throwing caution to the wind obviously these races don't mean as much so it's 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 easier to take big chances in these where it's not the end of the world if you do fail, but it is a lot of fun to be watching racing again. I, th I think we're okay. Let's let's just re preface this. We're pretty excited to be watching racing, so maybe we're overemphasizing some things in general, but it has been good. Um, and I don't get to say this very often, but the next race, the Tour de Lan, I actually won that race in 1987. I almost said 1987. <laughs> that would have been terrible. Let's just say the quality of the field was a lot different this year compared to 1997 when I won. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That, that, that was... I, I, you know, I have to give you a little bit more props. It's any race to win over in Europe is not easy to win. I don't care what the field is, but you're right. This field this year was stupid. I mean... 
they will never ever ever have a field like that at Tourland ever again and they never had one like this earlier so it was definitely a year to watch it was a vintage year and it, it did not disappoint i mean rolich was amazing his team was just as amazing but Ineos, i mean besides bernal there I I kind of sense they were on the back foot a little bit. Do you think this is just kind of keeping their cards close to their chest and and just getting the training in without too much stress or fatigue at the moment? I don't think there's any cards in my chest as far as that goes, but um, we've talked about this a lot before we came on screen here today, but I don't want to read too far into these races right now. Uh, the Tour de France is what really matters to these guys, and if you want to go dunk on somebody at Tourland, you should go dunk on them. But... I think that does send a message. I mean, there's two ways to look at it. We're, we're six weeks away from last Saturday to the last time trial in Planche de Belfi. So that's a long way to go. At the same time, stage number two is gnarly at the Tour de France. So you have to be ready for both the front side and the back side. It looks like Yumbo is definitely going to be ready for the front side. Um, we have the Dauphiné, which is five incredibly hard stages coming up starting Wednesday. Uh, all mountaintop finishes. I think we're going to see a little bit more of the same that we just saw this last week in Turland. And then moving on to Tour of Poland, obviously did not get off to a, a great start with a, the horrific crash from Fabio Jakobsen. And, you know, we don't know where he's at in his recovery. It sounds like it's moving in the, the right direction. But yeah, that, that was just a very unfortunate incident. And I read an article from Matteo Trentin from the CCC team, and he said something very mature. He said, instead of pointing fingers at one or two people, like we all have to look at ourselves and see what we can do to avoid this in, in, in the future. And I, I really have to agree with that because there were so many factors that just happened, you know, wrong place, wrong time. And, you know, it was, it was a terrible situation. I hope that Dylan Gronewagen can get over that as well as Fabio and his, his team and his family. Because this is this is just a part of cycling that you don't want to see, but it's the brutal, honest truth. I mean, when guys crash, bad things can happen, and let's just you know pray for for Fabio's quick recovery. No, I, I agree with you, and that that definitely struck a chord with me as well. Um, and he's he's right. You know, it's not just the guys who are riding and the organizers and the, and the UCI. It's even the, the people who've been retired. Bobby, you and I raced in the same race. It was dangerous back then. I mean, that that stage has been there for almost fifteen years. And they're going faster and faster every year, throwing a little bit of hook or a jab at 60 or 70k an hour versus 80 kilometers per hour or more. The consequences are so much more dire. And uh, anyway, I, it was very upsetting for everyone to, to witness that and to see something you never want to see anyone. And uh, you know, and even thinking of Dylan, um, the whiplash that he's had for this, uh, he's going to have to live with that for the rest of his life. Um, so I, I feel for him as well. Outside of that terrible crash, the racing in Tour of Poland was phenomenal. We had current world champion Mads Pedersen win his first race in, in the, uh, the jersey, which has always got to be a big thing. I know uh, Animalek is you know, used to doing that now, but that was great to see. I mean, Trek, you know, we're definitely going well at the beginning, like when the, the shutdown started and they're coming out firing. And what better way to do it with the current world champion getting a stage win on stage number two? 
No, that was incredible. I mean, I almost thought when I when I watched him do it, it was almost like he was christened from a higher power. Like this is what you're brought here to do. You're in the you're the world champion. You need to step up and make sure that everyone is cool again. You know that there's everything's going to be okay. And what a stud for doing it. Another young rider, tons of class, and to do it with the world championship. And I, I would I would have never picked him, Bobby. Never. Would you have picked him for the stage win that day? No way. I know he's, he's quick, but not to win a f- big field sprint instead of Pascal Ackerman, you know? So anyway, that was so cool to see. And it just made everyone take a deep breath and say everything's going to be okay. It really did. It really did. And then the next day we had Karpas win a great stage. But Remco Evenepoel, where are the limits here, Christian? I mean, this is this is crazy. He's won, what, this is his third or fourth stage race of the year that he's won so far. I mean, he's 21 years old. He can barely, he's barely old enough to sip that champagne that on, on the podium. I don't think he's 21 yet. I think he's still 20. But, oh my goodness. Uh, but you know, I remember doing the world championships with Paul Sherwin and he stopped me because, you know, you could imagine trying to do research for the men and women juniors of how difficult and frustrating that has could be, right? And so there is nothing to look at until we found Remco and uh, Paul Sherwin looked over to me. He's like, I think we could stop researching who we, who's going to be the winner of this race because Remco had not lost a race that year. I think he crashed out of one. That's the only reason he didn't win. But to think that, okay, you have a dominant junior. Okay, whatever. He's a junior. To just step up and then start winning races like San Sebastian and then podium at the time trial. And then what he's done this year? Forget about it. I mean, what he did attacking with 32 miles ago and just make everyone look like children behind him when he's the child, I, it, it was incredible to watch. It, it really was. And, and I, I know that we say that often, like, oh, you watch Peter Sagan, you watch uh, Egan Bernal, and it's incredible and it's incredible. This, I don't know, man. This is like when he, the consistency that he has these days is, is really what blows me away and how you could do it time and time and time again and always perform at the highest level and higher than you even thought was possible. And even more than winning a bike race, which in this world is, you know, kind of inconsequential. But the way that when he won that stage and I saw him fishing around in his pocket for something and he pulled out Fabio Jakobsen's uh, number and held it up to the crowd. I mean, that is just so, that's so much class to, in that moment, to be able to think about his teammate that's that's in the hospital. I mean, this kid is he's got everything. You know, he's a rock star with his results, but he's also super classy on the bike. And who knows? This guy, we've been talking about it for for a while now. There's no real boss of the Peloton, but this guy is positioning himself to be that guy. And you know, that positive gesture after that horrific accident to me was more important than him actually winning the bike race itself. I agreed. And it kind of goes in the same vein as Mads Pedersen as well, right? I mean, just here, here's another kid rising to the occasion, making sure that everyone, everyone's like, for, for example, when Mads won that stage, he had the relievers jersey and he immediately signed it to Fabio and his family. You know, this this belongs to you. You should be having this right now. And the same thing goes with, with Remco, you know, pulling out a, a, the number of his pocket. So he obviously had it before the stage. It's not like he went back to the team car to get that number. He was thinking about what exactly was doing. He was racing for somebody else that day it's it was really cool to see that kind of maturity level in a young 20 year old yeah i just got to really respect to coin it quick step as a team to come back together and 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 really rally 
And that's the best way to do it is to show the support and how much he means to you by doing something like that. And they wound up winning stage five with David Ballerini in the in the final sprint as well. So it almost felt normal. But watching Milan San Remo, that for the first time all year, I felt normal again. Like we all know that that race, it's the hardest race to win, but maybe the easiest to finish, you know, as far as the one day classics go. But then this year there was a little curveball, like they totally had to change the the parkour. So you didn't really know if it was going to be exciting racing. And man, it just turned out to be a phenomenal race. Big crescendo, like it always is. And I agree with you. It's it's the hardest race to win, easiest to finish for for a classic, for a monument. Um, it, it it sounds <laughs> it's not intuitive to think that a three hundred kilometer stage would be the easiest or race would be the easiest to finish, but it truly is. Um, but yeah, I mean, Eve, Italian races is just sexy, right? So there's a big crescendo all the way down. You go to over the Cipressi, go into the, the Poggio. To be honest, Bobby, you and I talked before the race. We were terrified, especially on the heels of what happened in Poland, that something bad was going to happen. There's going to be more cars on the road with all the, the beach traffic, things like that, all the tourists being out there. But luckily, nothing happened. It was a clean race. Alaphilippe was incredible, coming back from that flat tire, making it up to the front, and then going on the attack. And then Wout van Aert, what a stud. I mean, going back-to-back weekends, um, making me look smarter than I am as well, picking him. But he's just, what, what can't he do? He's another one of these guys. Time trial, sprints, you know, going on the tack. You know, obviously the world champion three times, I believe, in cyclocross as well. Yeah, I mean... Seeing him when he had that flat tire going through Imperia there with like 40k to go, I was like, man, I know how fast those guys go on that that coast road, and that's going to be very difficult to get back. Not only does he get back with great teamwork, then he launches that just stinging attack on the top of the Poggio. But looking at him on the descent, I mean, this guy is normally just a ballerina on the bicycle, especially going downhill. And it looked like something was off. Do you think that him having to switch bikes there with 40K to go, maybe there was too much air in his tires, or maybe he didn't have his 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 race bike with the exact same position? Because it's not normal to see a guy like Alaphilippe make that many mistakes on the descent. Agreed, agreed. And, and we had this conversation, you, George, and Cappy, and myself yesterday on the, on the bike ride, and, and you and George brought up some great points because George is very bullish in the, in the stance that he would have won. And I don't, I, you can never say that with a certainty. It's just, it's just not fair to say. But he came down the hill very unlike himself. You're right. And he usually flies down hills and he was stutter stepping through a lot of those corners. But yeah, if you're on a spare bike and it's not one that just feels normal to you, just a little bit being off. I mean, I'm talking millimeters in your saddle or tire pressure, something that you had to change. Who knows? It's been sitting on top of a, it was hot that day, sitting on top of the roof of the car. The tire pressure could have gone up. Who knows? Fact of the matter is, he got pumped in the sprint. I still think that Wout would have would have taken him back for how strong he was coming at the finish. I mean, Wout's 77 kilos. He's a big dude, 170 pounds, be able to go up the Poggio like that. Boys and girls, all these younger guys. Wout is 25 years old. We're gonna see all these guys kicking some butt for a long time. You know, we we were talking about the podium. You know, top 10 of Milan San Remo. Uh, we had a little uh, bet going. You you picked the winner. I picked from my heart, Philippe Gilbert, because I, I want him to win all the, the monuments. And uh, he got top 10. But then you mentioned something that, to me, was probably even more impressive than 
Van Aert winning. And that was young Matteo Jorgensen finishing in the first group in his first Milan San Remo. Awesome, right? 21 years old on a foreign team as well. That's not easy. Let, let me just tell you. From my one year at Liberty Seguros was one of the longest years. It's almost as long as quarantine. Just put it that way. Uh, <laughs> for him to be on Movistar, go over there, do the best from his team. Chapeau, dude. I mean, that is, that is great to see. Um, I love seeing the youth coming up to the forefront of cycling, especially in World Tour cycling over there. Um, I hope we see more to come. It's, it, we get so many races, three three a day sometimes on the weekends. We're going to see a lot more in the future. Go, Mateo. But you look, I mean, he finished in 17th place, which, you know, even being in that front group on, you know, your first Milan San Remo is amazing. But just looking at the names that w- was around him in that group. And then, hey, man, we got a we got a stud. We got Matteo Jorgensen for the future. This is this can be exciting. So, yeah, I mean, it was a very busy week and we have plenty more of those weeks action packed coming uh, coming at us right away. This week we have the Dauphiné which you were the one that informed me that every single stage is an uphill finish. I mean, what, what can we expect in the Dauphiné? Well, we could expect that there would be no sprinters going to this Dauphiné. And if they do, we'll, we'll, ah. say prayers. we'll be saying prayers for them. Um, apart from that, I don't know. I, I think it's really interesting to watch all these races, considering we only have pretty much the same guys, especially from Lado Yumbo, or Visma, Visma are going to be go- and Ineos are going to the same races. So the same guys you saw in Tourland are going to be racing more or less in the Dauphiné. So it's only two days of rest, right into five days back in the mountains. I think we're going to see a little bit more of the Primoz Roglic show going forward. Um, Sivikov is a guy that I am our kind of point out for the win there. He's a, a not a dark horse for anyone who knows how strong he is within the Ineos camp. Um, but I think he could be up there, of course, with Egan Bernal. But it's just interesting to see, like, who's going to show their cards, like you were saying earlier. Uh, we're only going to be less than T-minus 12 days to the Tour de France at the end of the Dauphiné. Uh, it, it's yeah, it's it's crazy times right now. We've never seen anything like this before. I mean, especially, okay, we just watched Milan-San Remo in August. Okay, that, that doesn't make sense, man. You can see people swimming. There'd be nobody out swimming in March. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, Milan San Remo is like the first classic monument of the year, and Lombardy is the last, and that's normally in October, like the last big hit out of the year. And here they are coming on consecutive weekends. What does Lombardy look like? I mean, dang, a lot of good guys ready preparing the Giro. Who's your Who's your pick? Because you're you said you were batting a thousand on these on these picks that we have on our little social rides. Who's your pick for Lombardia? Honestly, I have not even looked at the start list at Lombardia. I don't know even go, who's going over there. So I, I, I'm I'm all in right now for Dauphiné. That's all I'm thinking of because I'm do, we're doing this show for NBC this week for them. Um, but I, I, I'm going to have to I'm I'm going to be going down to 500 I think after this because I will say the the biggest difference with Lombardia is going to be hot. You know, it's been a heat wave in Italy. If this continues, Lombardia is, is a very hard race. It's not like Milan Serena, where it's, like you said earlier, one of the easier classics to finish. Um, I think Lombardia is going to be a rough race, and I think it's going to be a, very similar to what we saw in Strada Bianchi, where it was just coming in ones and twos, and people just on the limit trying to finish. Stay tuned. we got a lot more to go. It's going to get better and better. 
I have loved the sport of cycling since Connie Carpenter and Alexi Graywall won the 1984 Olympic road race in Los Angeles. But growing up in Colorado, I live for Denver Bronco football. My family and I were huge fans, took the results of the game maybe a little bit too personal. And our guest today is just happens to be one of the best running back coaches in Denver Bronco history. He's currently a running back coach for the Miami Dolphins, but I'm super excited to have him on because he was part of the team when we won Super Bowl 50 back in 2015. So Eric Studesville, welcome to Put Your Socks On, and thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule to speak with us. Awesome, Bobby. Appreciate it. Thanks for the introduction. I'm glad to be here. Looking forward to it. Okay. Our podcast is tethered to the world of cycling, and you're obviously involved in a totally different sport. So First question, what got you into cycling or what specific event or person piqued your interest in the sport? Yeah, for, well, I was born and raised in Madison, Wisconsin. So there's quite a few cyclists in Madison and, and, uh, and it's a great area to ride. There's lots of countryside and things of that nature. And I just grew up, you know, I, I saw a lot of cyclists. I thought the bikes were cool and uh, I wanted to get one of those bikes because they looked cool and the guys on them looked cool, you know, and their kits and all those kind of things. And so I just, I started riding. And then um, really where it picked up for me was where I lived in order before I could drive for me to go see my friends, I had to get on a bike. So I had to ride to Verona or I had to ride back into Madison because I lived out in Fitchburg, uh, which is just outside of Madison. And so I ended up being on a bike. And then once I got into football, I started using it as a training method. It was great for me because I could ride when I was in high school and go and work out and get a great workout in, and it just worked out good for me. And ever since then, I just, I, I just, I've always liked bikes. Did you ride at Whitewater as well, there? No, I didn't. You know, I took a, I took a break for a while from when I was in high school. When I got my driver's license is when I really stopped riding, like during that time. You know, other than training during the summertime, but then I, um, when I picked it up again, really for me was when I got to Denver. You know, when I start, first moved there, they got great bike trail system out there in Denver, tons of cyclists, tons of bike shops out there. And I just, uh, you know, it's, it's such a great place to ride. And I went and got, found a local mom and pop bike shop that took great care of me. And next thing you know, I was back knee deep into it and riding, you know, quite a bit. And it just, just enjoyed it, loved it. Yeah, the love of the bike for sure. I mean, it's got to be a little bit of a change of pace for you going from the, uh, the workouts and, you know, the stress of NFL and just getting out on that bike and relaxing must be fantastic, let alone in Colorado. Well, it is. And first of all, it's beautiful scenery in Colorado. And then, like I say, the, the, the bike trail system that they have out there, as well as the riding up in the flat irons, you know, you get out, um, you know, around Chatfield Reservoir and things of that nature. Just, it's, it's just great to ride. And it's a, it was a great relief for me. And then the other thing for me was that, you know, I had two kids, two small kids at the time. And, um, you know, my wife felt better about giving me a pass to go ride for two and a half, three hours than she would and give me a pass to go golf for six or seven. <laughs> That's it. And what about what about now in Miami? You, what, what's it? What does it look like now? Yeah, you know, it's it's not been as easy here. It's not as friendly to ride on the roads and things here. Drivers are a lot faster and they don't pay <laughs> as much attention and those things. So um, there's a local bike group that I've been riding with uh, before quarantine because they kind of shut down during the quarantine area. And then quite a few people ride down on the beach on A1A. So where I am, which is just west of Fort Lauderdale, you can ride all the way up to Boca Raton and things. So there's cyclists out there every, really every day, but a lot on the weekends too. So that's a good place to ride. 
So moving from your personal enjoyment of, of cycling, have you introduced this to any of your running backs over the years? And if so, like what was the sales pitch to get a guy that's, um, you know, used to running and crushing into defensive lines to actually get on a bike and see some, some, uh, some progression or even recovery from, from riding a bicycle? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. I, I tell guys all the time, you know, the, the interesting thing about football players is football players shy away from cycling for the strangest reason. They don't want to put on the, the cycling shorts. That's, that's the first thing that everybody talks about. They, I don't want to wear those shorts. I don't want to wear those shorts. You know, and, and so my argument that I make to the guys is, listen, if you're going to get on a bike and ride with me, you're going to be breathing too heavy to joke me about whatever kind of shorts we're wearing. So we're going to we're, we're going to we're going to be breathing heavy when we go. This is not, you know, a cruiser type situation here. We're going to be working. But once you get them on it, it goes probably the best person that I got into cycling was C.J. Anderson. His last year when we were in Denver in at the end of I believe it was uh, would have been 16 um, CJ tore the meniscus in one of his knees and had to have it surgically, surgically repaired, the meniscus sutured back together. And so any kind of pounding on his knee caused swelling and problems as he was going through his rehab. And uh, as he got later in his rehab and later in the spring as we were getting to the summer, um, he was finding it hard to feel like he could get the workouts that he needed to get in shape because he couldn't run, he couldn't pound on his knee, so he was – he was boxing and doing some some other things, but all that turning on the boxing was still causing irritation in his knee. And so I told him, I said, "Hey, why don't you try? Why don't you try cycling?" He's like, "Ah, I'm not doing that. I don't want to do it. It won't be enough. I won't get enough of a workout." And I said, "Tell you what, why don't you come up to the house? Because I, I, I have a couple bikes." I said, "I'll get you on one of mine. We'll go for a ride and just see how you, see how you feel and how you like." And um, so he came up a couple of days later, we went out on a ride and I took him out and we got out to, we were out about seven miles and I pulled over and he was in a full lather dripping. And he's like, wow, I didn't know it was like this. And I said, well, we just getting warmed up. We're getting ready to start riding now. <laughs> he, said, he said, you're kidding me. I said, no. I said, he said, how far will we go? I said, well, we'll probably go about 2022 20, right here. And he said, and we got back and when he got off the bike, I mean, he was dripping with sweat. He was, you know, not exhausted, but he knew he'd done a lot of work. Two weeks later, he had, you know, full cycling gear. He went out and bought a bike, shoes, everything, and he was in it. And that year he rode, and it really allowed him to take the pounding off of his knee but still do a high uh, level of conditioning, particularly cardiovascularly. Now, it wasn't, same, it wasn't the same anaerobic change in direction, planning and cutting and this and that, but it did give him a cardiovascular component that I thought really made a difference for him in in uh in what he did uh yeah i totally agree i mean when i look at footballers that are you know all about the atp you know the quick muscle twitch the the planting and stuff like that and then cycling but yeah just for the overall conditioning and what about recovery did you ever you know after a hard game incite these guys to go out and just spin on the bicycle for some active recovery instead of i don't know you know doing ice baths and massage did you yeah. use it as a recovery technique as well that's that's probably ours is more ice and and massage and different kinds of stretching things whether you know art or whatever we're doing with guys um they certainly can do that i just i just don't think it triggers in our guy our guys don't think big bodies don't think of getting on a bicycle as a as a method of you know regenerating themselves in recovery. They just, it's just not what it is, but that doesn't mean they can't do it. I just think you got to get guys into it. And once you usually get 
the guys into it and they get stimulated by it. All of a sudden you're like, man, this is, this is kind of cool to do this. And there are, there are a lot of people, you know, that there's a lot of, you know, LeBron rides, um, Reggie Miller rides, you know, there's some people, some other athletes that are crossing over and finding cycling. And I think, you know, for me, I, I just, I love it the same way. It's a great release to charge yourself up. And do you watch the actual sport? Do you watch a lot of the Tour de France? Are you are you a fan of yeah, that? Well, so interestingly enough, how all this has happened is that's how I met TJ Van Garderen. Is I'm I'm one of these guys that I wake up at five o'clock every morning and watch every stage of the tour. I record it, and if so, if I don't get it up at the start of it, I'm fast forwarding through the commercials, so I'm trying to catch up. But I, in when it even when it goes into the season, if I'm sitting in the office, I've got it on the TV watching the stages. Um, I'm I I watch the Grand Tours, all those kind. Of, I, I love it, and even some of the other stage races, I love watching. I, I just I find so many comparisons. The longer I watch cycling to football, that and maybe I've made that up in my brain, but I, I think there's some some real comparisons. Well, that's awesome. We go, sorry, Bob. We absolutely that was our our question because we feel the same way. But like, what similarities do you see between the NFL? And, and professional cycling teams? Yeah, I, I think the first one I, that sticks out in my mind the most is, you know, I talk in my, in my room with running backs all the time about establishing roles and functions on a team. Everybody's got a role and function. Um, running back, you know, you may be a third down back. You may be a short yardage or a goal line back. You know, um, you know what are you and are you the two-minute guy that's in there? So there's roles and functions. Are you a special teams contributor? Those kind of things. I see that similar on a cycling team when I watch it. The domestiques, they have a role and a function. And that and they have the you have the certainly you have the G C guy and you have your, you know, your sprinters and your climbers and those things. But everyone on that team has a role and a function and everyone has to perform their role and function to the maximum for the team and for the G C rider to have the greatest chance to be successful. And I, I just I I see I see a lot of similarities in that I see the domestique people as like the offensive linemen. They don't, you don't, may not know who they are, but they're, they got to be out there grinding those K's every day for the team to succeed, you know, and okay, your sprint guy, maybe that's your wide receiver, or your running back and your GC guys are your quarterback, those kind of things. And, you know, I, I just, as I sit and watch it, I, I kind of, I see it that way. Now that that's a beauty of the sport in, in any sport, I believe. And do you run into brick walls once in a while with trying to keep people's egos in check and try to keep those people in their box? Well, well I, I'd say yes. And, and, you know, and I, I think the one thing I love about cycling and particularly, obviously the cycling that we see, I, I don't know. I'm sure there's thousands and thousands of races that, that I don't know anything about in this, but when you're watching particularly the grand tours, the tour, the Giro, you know, all those kind of things, the Vuelta that, um, those are the best of the best that are competing in cycling. And we have the best of the best competing in football at the, in the NFL level. And there's a certain amount of ego and uh, competitiveness that in order to compete at that level, you have to have. Putting that in check, I think it's, I don't know if you ever put it in check with guys, you, you have to channel it the right way. And I think that's what I spend a lot of time doing, guys, and that's establishing roles and functions like I was talking about. That's We're trying to get them to contribute. How can you do whatever you need to do to make the team better? But at the same point in time, I know you have aspirations and personal goals, and we're, we're going to try to accomplish those too, but you can't achieve anything individually without the team. 
in, in cycling, I do believe that the mental side of it is even more important than the physical side of it. Like if you're a happy rider, you're going to be a strong rider. So with your coaching techniques outside the X's and O's of the plays and, and the workouts, do you, do you believe in, in the mental training, the mental aspect of the game just as much as I do? I believe in that side of it. I don't know about just as much because I like that's one of the things that really when I sit and watch cycling is so intriguing to me. We play every seven days and there is a mental preparation that has to take place during the week and you do things. But the reality of it is the competition is every seven days. I am completely fascinated with the NBA and cycling, particularly the Grand Tours of what you have to do mentally to be able to perform every day at the highest level and to reset that clock the next morning to get up. And it may be a different stage. It may be a different topography that you're going over today. You know, it may be a time travel. The, the mental, I think that really is such an interesting concept for, for me that's very difficult to understand because I don't have to do it every day. I get a, a small down period on Monday and then we start ramping up as the week goes to get ready for Sunday. So that, that part of it, I think there is a huge mental part of it, but I don't know if I can compare or even relate to, to what happens on the, on the bike. Yeah, but I mean, you got these, you're coaching these running backs that are fast, agile, normally not the biggest guy on the field. And you have to convince him to basically run a play where everyone on the other side of the ball wants to crush him. Yes. I mean, that, that to me, that, that mental letting go of that fear is like a sprinter opening up from 200 meters to go. What happens happens. But yeah. like that, that to me is, is got to be such an integral part of the coaching is like, yeah, you can be fast, you can be quick, but you know, do you see that fear? And we always say that when sprinters are getting towards the end of their career, they start to see that fear or they start thinking about their kids or their future. And then all of a sudden they're not taking those yeah. chances. But like to be a, an NFL running back in this day and age, you got to be fearless. So that's why I was so curious about that mental side of, you know, just sitting these guys down and, and, and making sure that they're, they're right. Bobby, I would probably tell you that I would say probably any position on an NFL field, you have to feel like that. These guys are so big, so fast, so explosive, so physical that there's not a, that, that, that as much as I would love to say we're isolated as running backs and having that great courage level and all that, that's at every position on the field. Our game is so fast and so physical. And these, these players that we have doing this do amazing things for the size and speed that they move that there's not a person out there that that's why there's only 1400 people in the world that are competing at this level, because it, it's not for everybody. It's really not. So Eric, we were talking about the differences a little bit earlier about what cycling was like, let's say, for you, 97 in the Bears, sitting in the office, to sitting in the office today, how much difference is the preparation for a game, yeah. the recovery for a game, technology that they bring, wearables, all these kind of things. Like in cycling, the aerodynamics has gotten incredible. Um, the training's you know second to none now. Everyone, the, the entire field is at a higher level. What's, what's the difference from 97 when you went to the Bears to today? Well, I, I think it's all those things you're talking about. Certainly technology has changed. You know, um, there's helmet companies that were in existence back when, when I was playing and in the 90s that aren't in existence anymore. You know, technology has changed. What we put our players in, um, shoes for sure have changed dramatically. You know, Nike 
and Adidas have, have for sure changed the landscape of what, what they wear on their feet to play the game and different surfaces have changed that they play on the different kinds of turf now, as opposed to the old soldier field turf that they used to have, that was like matted down uh, um, melted plastic. You know, that's those, that, that's those surfaces aren't there anymore. Um, certain, and then the other thing I would tell you, I would say is probably the technology involved in how we do it. We used to use, um, when I first went to the bears, we used um, um, beta cam tapes which were small half hour long tapes. You had these big machines under your desk and you had to pop those in. Well, now everything's, we're in a tapeless environment. There's no more tape in here. Everything's on servers here. You know, I have a server in my, I have a computer station in my office that I can do everything that I need to do right here in my office and walk down in my meeting room and have access to the exact same thing. And all I do is turn it on. So I think, um, you know, we're getting feedback um, with the players quicker. We used to have to wait for, you know, film to be recorded and processed and put on a tape to do. Now it's instant. As soon as we walk off the field, we have that same practice tape. Um, and then the advent of statistics has been phenomenal with like PFF, those kind of things where they track the stats of teams. We can get any, any just about any kind of stat you want to look for, you can get uh, much quicker. We used to have to do it with paper and manually or some kind of way, you know, as computers were coming in a little bit, those things. But I think that's changed. And then the other, the other point that you talked about, certainly down in the physical component of it, nutrition, uh, what we call gurus, whether stretch people, massage therapists, any kind of new modalities that they're using, um, you know, the, uh, what do you call them, the, the Norma Tech things that they put on their legs for compression and cold and all those kind of things. I've seen some cyclists using those now um, after races and things. But it's just technology has, and we've we've grown with the technology too in every area, probably much as cycling has. And how hard was that from you going from a little whiteboard to now an an iPad with stuff just like instantly there? I mean, that's a lot of people say that that's what's taken like you know sort of the purity out of cycling is that data is everything, and we just want to like crunch the data. But like that human performance side of it gets a little bit left out, especially with one team um, in particular. But yeah, like how have, how, have you embraced that? And no. could you ever see yourself going back to the old way? No, you haven't. No, as a matter of fact, I'm kind of an old school guy. I still write. If you still look at all my stuff, I got, I've got, you know, you see red writing here and drawings and things like that. That's how I do it. I, I, I don't even have my iPad. My iPad is not even charged up that we have to use this. I, I still write things down on paper. I still need a playbook to write in all those kind of things. So I, I I, I kind of fight some of that, some of the new technology. I, I use the technology that um, for watching the tape and doing things. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, that's how I got started in the league. I was, I was able to figure out computers and how computers were coming into the, the league and doing things. But um, at the end of the day, I still like, I still like drawing plays with a pen and a pencil and, and scribbling something out and trying it here. And what about if he draw goes here and, what if we want this double team to go there? I, I still I still like drawing things. And I still love to get on the grease board. You know, a lot of times you'll see my hands. They've got all kinds of colors on them because I, I don't use an eraser. I just use my hand or my <laughs> sleeve or whatever. <laughs> and so I, some things don't change. Tell me a little bit, um, because I understand that you majored in physiology. What was your major in, in college? Well, my undergraduate degree is in secondary education. But I'm not. But I'm not certified to teach. So really, I was a PE teacher coming out of college. That's what I was, 
And, um, and then I went and got my master's degree at the University of Arizona in exercise physiology. Yeah, yeah. So, like, what is the normal sports science department look like in the NFL? Because now in cycling, I mean, it's, it's everything. Like, that's really the, the, the heartbeat of the team. How about you guys there? I mean, we see all these fancy analytics on, on, on TV, but how is your guys' sports science department set up, and, and how much do, you, do the athletes actually believe in that? Well, it's, it's a critical component for a football team. And it starts because really in the off season, your strength coach, he's has the most contact with your players than anybody does. And so that department is enormous because they set the tone and the tempo for what you're going to do when we start getting the players as coaches. Um, as far as how it's set up, we've got a full weight room downstairs. Um, we have a staff of there's four full-time guys down there. And they're, they do everything. I mean, now it's an old school kind of room here. We're getting ready to get a new facility that I'm sure will have a lot more bells and whistles. But, but what they do is they do whatever the players need. And there's, there's all kinds of things down there. I mean, we have, we obviously have weights, we have machines, we have, um, you know, uh, all kinds of ropes and straps and things and that you can get down there. We have everything down there. We have pools, we have a, um, we have a, uh, a low altitude, excuse me, a high altitude chamber that we have so we can put players in there. We have um, weight reduction treadmills, all the, I mean, it's everything for these guys to be able to train. There's also uh, a nutritionist that's on staff full time that works with our cafeteria people as far as setting up meals, uh, snacks, that works with the players when they leave here. What are their meals like? Because we do have weight restrictions on players. I mean, they're, there's weight limits that are set. They can't just be as big as they want to be. Um, so we work with them. And then we also, the other, the other component that's really popped up in the NFL in the last few years, which is necessary and a good thing is we've got a mental health expert that has to be um, accessible to your building because, um, you know, just in today's world that we need to have that outlet too for the whole athlete, not just the physical part of them, but we want to make sure that they're right as young people and as, as, as young men. And Eric, you guys have a time restriction for full contact. Is that correct? Right, for, during the season you're gonna be on right the, now. Right now, or during, yeah, yeah actually. The, the, we, have, we have restrictions on how many days we can put them in pads, Christian, to practice, but um, we probably don't, I wouldn't think of it like time restrictions. We don't hit them as long because they can't hold up. You know, if you go out and have three, three hour practice, you have three practices during the week that are three hours long and you're wearing pads, you won't have anybody to play on the game on Sunday. Their bodies will just be worn down. And so really we're only, we're only physical in pads um, one day a week. And that's, uh, we get all our work done in that. The rest of it is getting things lined up. Now we still, we still thump and hit, but it's not full. There is never tackling, cutting, full speed drills and things like that that we do. And what about right now? And now, well, because of the rules we have right now, we can't uh, um, we can't be in pads. We're just we're literally we look just like Bobby does. We, they're out there in hats and jerseys and things like that and running around. <laughs> Next week we can put on helmets, and then in two weeks we'll be able to be in pads. And you know, obviously, we're in a very different situation, a very special situation now. But moving into the pandemic, you know, era 
COVID-19. How are the coaches looking out for the athletes during this, this, this moment in that we've never seen before? Like what special things um, are you guys implementing to make sure that the, the players are, are, are safe and knowledgeable about what's going on? Yeah, well, first of all, a lot of education has gone into talking about what we need to do to be able to work again um, because of the situation. We obviously, um, we're doing testing, um, but there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of procedures in place. We all wear face masks. We all have them all around in our offices. We're required, in our offices, we don't have to wear face masks, but anytime we leave our offices, we're moving around the building. We're in meetings around players. We all have face masks on. We're required that even on the practice field when we're out there, we're wearing them. We all have contact tracers. So we're trying to figure out, you know, if you've been near somebody that tests positive, who was near them for how long, that determines some things. Um, we're talking about, you know, washing your hands, being safe, not touching your face. We've changed our cafeteria, um, you know, operating procedures completely different now. The, you know, in how we get our food, how it's packaged for us to be able to go get it. Um, and, and really, the, the NFL and our team has done a fantastic job of decreasing the stress that goes into what could be, you know, if in all these situations. That's what's scary thing. We just don't know. But there's so many things in place. So many I's have been dotted and T's that have been crossed to make you feel like, okay, if everybody does what these things and does what we're supposed to do, you know what? We got a chance to get to tomorrow healthy and the more tomorrows we put together, the closer we'll get to playing football. Yeah, and especially with you guys in Miami. I mean, right now it's not a great place to be for the players. And then on the heels of what happened with the Marlins, yeah, yeah I'm sure it's <laughs> you guys are ultra, ultra aware what the consequences are. It's, it's you know, it, it's a scary thing for all of us. But, but at the end of the day, we want everybody to be healthy. We don't want to put anybody at risk, and we certainly don't want any of our families to be at risk that we're going home to. So is it different? Yeah, it's different for us. But – but I, it's like I've told my players, I said, this is what we do at the end of the day. You know, if there's a, if, if there's a defense gets a fumble and we're on the, on the bench, we got to get up and go play. And it's a sudden change. And this is what we're doing in life. It's a, it's a sudden change in life. And we got to figure out how to adapt to it and adjust to it so we can go out and do what we need to do, which is uh, do our jobs. And it's different, but we'll get used to it. So how do you actually see the NFL season uh, playing out this year? Do you think that teams will be able to travel from from state to state stadium to stadium will will there be fans in the stands um i know as long as it's on tv i'm happy but like there's nothing like watching a a live game i, I re- you know what bobby i really don't know i and and in all honesty and i know this don't i just we got to get through today and it's like I said, you know, that's what we're focused on. We're just focused on everybody doing what they got to do today. Because if we start worrying about what the games are going to look like and this and that, we may skip a step in here. And and we all, as you, you know, Chris, you made a point with the Marlins. It just takes one or two guys to not be doing the right things, and and who knows what's going to happen. So we're really focused on, hey, let's just do everything we're supposed to do today and keep taking the steps forward. And hopefully that will get us to the point where we can play and and you know. We'll worry about what the games look like as we get closer to those. But right now, we've got so many other things we've got to do getting ready and just trying to keep guys healthy and smart and making good decisions away from here and, you know, social distancing when we are here, you know, at the right level so that we're giving ourselves the best chance. 
I, I would I would say the same thing. And you know what? You're you're a men, you're mentally a Grand Tour rider without even knowing it. I mean, that's the same mentality you have to have in a Grand Tour, just day by day by day. If you start thinking of what's going to happen on stage 17 on day two, you're probably going to crash your brains out the next day. So yeah, it's the best way to put it. Yeah, I have a, I have a sign in the in the running back room. And it's got it's got the number one and the at symbol and a big X next to it. And I, I don't tell anybody what it's for. I, I use it kind of as a conversation piece. And the whole reason for it is it's one at a time, which means we're going to take one minute at a time, one meeting at a time, one practice at a time, one day at a time. Let's just win this one at a time here and not worry about what's down the road and take care of where we are right now. And then let's see what happens from there. Eric, thanks for taking us a little deeper into your world, but uh, transferring back to cycling topic, obviously you know a lot about cycling. So I'm going to put you on the hot seat here. Who is your pick for the 2020 Tour de France this year? My pick for the Tour de France this year. Um, He's pulling out his notes, his little. I'm not, no, no notes. (laughs) I mean, you know, I don't, I don't know. I think, I think it's such a great opportunity because when, when you throw off the schedule, someone's going to someone's get a new opportunity to rise that maybe somebody didn't. So maybe the favorites, they don't respond or don't do what they need to do and somebody else pops out of there. I, I, don't, I don't know. To me, it's, I, I just love the competition. I don't, you know, TJ obviously is my favorite rider right now because he's a friend and a buddy and I talk to him. So I always cheer for him. My kids know as soon as they see cycling on, the first question they ask is, where's TJ? You know, those kind of things. Um, I'm always cheering for him. I, I I love to see when he does well, but it, it's truly, you know what? I, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't have one favorite rider that I, I bet on. I just love watching it and studying it and listening and learning. And I, I really don't know that much about cycling, but I, sh- I sure love watching and listen to it. And, and I learn so much every year watching, watching the grand tours and the coverage. Well, I tell you one thing, it's it's great to meet people like you. I mean, cycling just especially nowadays brings everyone back together because there's a lot more people on bikes and we all have our stories. We all have our trials and tribulations. We all use the bike for different reasons. And that's why I love just meeting new people that use the bike for a different reason than, you know, to be a professional athlete. I mean, so many of us use it in so many different ways. Um but thank you so much for taking your time out of your busy schedule to talk with us. Obviously, big fan of American football. And anytime those worlds collide for me, I am just happier than you can ever imagine. So thank you very much for being with us today. Awesome, guys. I'd love to come back anytime. Let me know. And that's all we have for this week. Hope you enjoyed this episode. And thanks again to Eric Studsville from the Miami Dolphins for joining us. Also want to say a special thank you to our guest co-host, Mr. Christian Vanneveld. Thanks for filling in for Gus today, man. My pleasure, man. It's a blast. You can find all of our past episodes as well as a ton of other fantastic cycling journalism over at velonews.com. You can subscribe at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or whatever your favorite go-to podcast site may be. Just search for Put Your Socks On or Fizzo, P-Y-S-O. Please continue to show your support by subscribing to this program, and please spread the word by telling your friends about us. You can also get onto us at social media, Fizzopod, P-Y-S-O-P-O-D on Twitter, at that is Gus and at Bobby.Julik on Instagram. Give us a little shout out, give us some ideas, some suggestions, some feedback, 
But until next week, thank you all for listening. Stay safe, stay sane, stay calm, and don't forget to put your socks on.